Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Thanks for joining the Hatchery. Emory's Center for Innovation for Might Could, Tales of Innovation in the ATL. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming special guests, Chuck Reese and Stacy Shuker Reese, co-founders of Salvation South. Chuck was previously co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Bitter Southerner, which aimed to debunk stereotypes about our region by uncovering the American South in all its truth and complexity, and is now editor-in-chief of Salvation South. Stacy is president of Down South House and Home, which offers high-quality Southern-themed home goods with a clean, classic design, and now co-founder and head of merchandise for Salvation South, which aims to do two things, celebrate the unique Southern culture that unifies us all, and explore some of our current divisions in the hope we can begin having civil conversations, perhaps not always agreeing with each other, but always walking away as friends. On the Salvation South website, Chuck explains that he's not bitter anymore, but hopeful. Hopeful because he and Stacy have met and now have had the opportunity to serve so many people who want to have conversations that might bring a little more peace into this world. These days, stereotypes are the least of the South's problems. Our region's deepest problem is division. Southerners are divided eight, uh, from each other eight ways to Sunday. Salvation South will never stoke the fires of those divisions. It will be a place where people of goodwill can talk, where writers and photographers and filmmakers can bring us food for thought that we can talk about together. Chuck has run his own communications consulting firm and has worked for the who's who of Georgia corporations and individuals, including the Coca-Cola Company, the Georgia Lottery, and for the state of Georgia as director of communications to government Zell, Governor Zell Miller. He holds an ABJ in journalism for the, uh, from the University of Georgia, where he served as the editor-in-chief of the UGA student newspaper, The Red and Black. And it is a great pleasure to have him here on the show today. Prior to Down Home and South, Stacy served as president of Down South Innovation, her own business development firm, where she created strategic relationships for clients in the Southeast, as director, partnership development for Georgia Bio, and as director, Center for Innovation for Life Sciences at the Georgia Department of Economic Development, where she worked to connect Georgia companies to academic and industry expertise, commercialization and technology resources, potential investors, and government agencies. She holds a BS with chemistry focus from the University of Georgia and a PhD in inorganic chemistry from Carnegie Mellon University. So Chuck and Stacy, thank you both for joining us on Mike Could today. Glad to be here. Glad, Glad to, to be, be here. here. Thanks for the invitation, well, Shannon. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, and uh, I wonder if we could start our conversation today by having you tell us a bit more about Salvation South, what you do, for whom, and how. So maybe, Chuck, you could take this one first, and then Stacy. Salvation South is primarily an online magazine, uh, and we hope it will be funded by the sale of merchandise that Stacy designs and uh, 
overseas the, the manufacturer of. Uh, I know that, that most publications are supported by advertising, but this is a business model that I've actually tried by four before in my, uh, you know, previous life at the Bitter Southerner. And, uh, you know, I, I like doing it because you don't have, uh, you know, advertisers trying to put limitations on what you can say and what you can't, can't say. Uh, and, you know, what we want to do, you know, I started the Bitter Southerner really back in, in 2013 because I was mad. You know, I was, I was genuinely angry at uh, the way the South as a region was reported on in, in the field of journalism. And it, it, it seemed to me that every story that was written about the South was written uh, from, every story about the South put a stereotype on us, right? That, you know, we were hillbillies, we were racists, et cetera, et cetera. And I, uh, with the Bitter Southerners, set out to build a, a publication that uh, uh, would debunk those stereotypes. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I am now doing uh, Salvation South is that I really feel like for our region today, you know, in uh, 2022, stereotypes are the least of our problems. Division is the greatest of our problems. And, you know, I, I want us to create a magazine that people can read and feel a little light, you know, coming into the daily conversation and uh to you know the, the conversation that makes them want to talk to each other about this region in in a way that isn't based on arguments and stereotypes you know and uh that's been a tough trick to pull off but i think we're doing it pretty well so far I think Chuck is being a little modest when he says that uh, he started, he's done this model before because he pretty much innovated this model, supporting journalism through the sale of t-shirts and other merchandise. The t-shirts came first um, and other apparel. And then I, I brought in the, um, the tea towels and other, other items later on. But, you know, back in 2013, you know, journalism was taking a huge nosedive. Uh, advertisers were going away. Um, and how do you support a, a, a publication that didn't make a dime for the first year of its existence? How do you, you know, how do you support a publication in a way that doesn't require advertisers? And a lot of people were struggling with that issue, and Chuck and his team at the Bitter Southerner, um, they 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 cracked that nut. And um, you'll see a lot of other 
sort of journalism-based uh, organizations or, or you know, people who create content on the web, you know, selling t-shirts and, and selling tea towels. And, you know, so, so, I mean, I think Chuck was on the forefront of, of this particular business model. I know we're talking about entrepreneurship and, um, you know, and, you know, what's the difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur. And I think there was a very entrepreneurial, innovative, um, step that they took there that not many people were doing back in 2013. Oh, shucks. You, you're just saying <laughs> that. I'm your husband. Exactly. Exactly. See, this is, I like this one too dynamic already. I can tell. <laughs> uh, so here's a question, a follow-up to that. Uh, I, I, two follow-ups. One we're going to come back to in a bit because I want to dig into this question of building a new model to support um, editorial and to support journalism and, um, you know, sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that that takes, but also what sort of other hook to get the, the right engagement with the audience and the right kind of audience to support it. But before we get there, um, Chuck, uh, in another uh, masterful understatement in your uh, opening comments, you uh, you say that um, that you uh, that it's been kind of a tough nut to crack, but you've gotten somewhere, right, with this uh, this new model and with uh, getting people feeling like they're coming into the conversation. I'm curious, what specifically has been tough about it. Is it is it the tone? Is it a needle you're threading with like the tone and content? Is it changing the ways that people interact with content at a moment when so much of what we've gotten used to is action reaction um, as opposed to dialogue um, and journalism as a presentation of the facts seems to have been supplanted by journalism as a uh, case for how you should feel about the facts. Which of those things, or is it all those things, or is it something else? You know, I'd, I'd like to, if I could just insert something there, because I, I run the social media for Salvation South. And, um, you know, and I remember back in 2013, uh, the the way that uh, the Bitter Southerner caught on in social media was just sort of like it went, you know, it was just, it, but, but the Facebook, and, and I'm not sure if they even had Instagram back then, but Facebook and Twitter, they were very, you know, th there was a lot of room for engagement and discussion and, and things could move virally in a way that, that feels different now. And, you know, and because we are, you know, looking to, you know, promote unity and civility and, you know, we don't have a lot of people arguing back and forth, the algorithm on Facebook and, and Instagram just really doesn't see us that much and you know and it's it seems to be a very different world um than what the bitter southerner experienced in social media and it's like and a lot of times i just i just wish we could go back to like 2012 everything you know it's like facebook made sense google made sense you know it's like now it seems like everything's uh, fractured and 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 niche oriented and and um, you know and, and, you know Facebook it's just very hard to get traction and I think a lot of people are you know are not on Facebook as much as they used to be or you know they you know they've kind of tuned it out and um, 
or you know just, or they don't they don't pay as much attention to what's on it because they don't know what's true and so I find um I, I have found that to be very different um, in, in the launching of Salvation South is just getting getting people to engage with us in, in that way has, is just has a very different feel than it did eight years ago. Well, you know, from the editorial side of things, the reason I say it's been a tough nut to crack is that we're doing something that is counter to counterintuitive to the expectations of the audience right there is you know any any good teacher of writing you know whether it's journalism which is supposed to be a flat presentation of the facts at its purest level uh will tell you that a good story becomes a great story when you introduce conflict into it, right? And, uh, you know, we are trying to do these things from a foundation of you don't have to have conflict in them. Or if we're talking about the conflict is built into a story, we can also talk about how do you sort of leapfrog over that? Yes, this story has conflict built on it. And yes, these groups of people disagree about it. But can't we talk about why? You know, can't we talk about all the rest of these factors that, that make it, all the rest of these factors that give us some hope in the middle somehow you know and you know I, I it's interesting because i find it difficult i find it difficult even to talk about myself but like i know it when i see it it's what was the judge who famously said uh you know about pornography i believe wasn't it thoroughgood marshall yeah yeah you know that i I can't tell you what pornography is, but I know it when, when I see it, you know? Mm -hmm. And some of the stories that we tell are kind of that way. You know, we've, what, the first story we, we ran was called, But I Have Hope. And uh, it was by a guy uh, who lives in Wilmington, North Carolina, who was a retired, uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. And uh, he uh, wrote a piece about how, you know, he came out of the armed forces, you know, seeing all this conflict in the world. And at the same time, he was raising a, a young daughter you know, and seeing all the hope that she had for the world. And how, how does he make those two things fit together? And, uh, you know, it, I, think it, I think it works because of the willingness of the writers who contributed to be able to share their pieces of their personal life mm -hmm. into their stories. It's like, you know, if they're willing 
if somebody's willing to put a piece of their personal life in with, uh, you know, a piece of the, the issues they deal with, then there's a potential that, that will make a good fit for each other. So I'd like to go further into two things that you've just raised. One is that you're both really talking about nuance in an age when it's not appreciated. Um, you know, I mean, nobody seems to have a sense of it or care for it. Uh, we like our, uh, our martini straight and our arguments like sledgehammers, you know, and uh, so that's, that's one thing that strikes me, but something else strikes me. And, and that is this idea that if somebody brings in the personal, that can be uh, an effective substitute for conflict in terms of grabbing the attention of the reader, of involving somebody in a dialogue. You can either have, uh, you know, say something controversial, or you can say something that really invites true and genuine human dialogue. And so in that vein, there are a couple questions I've been wanting to ask, um, kind of identity and content questions. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how Southern became what it is today conceptually. And I'm a Midwesterner by birth who grew up in the Rocky Mountain West. And I have relatives from the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest, and none of them considers themselves Northern. Um, and there's obviously a lot of history in play here and a lot that this question intentionally glosses over. But it's rare to have the opportunity to ask this question of folks who have made it their work to both create identity and dispel myths around regional monikers. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on why Southern people see themselves as Southern. Um, and Stacy, maybe you'd be willing to answer that one first and then Chuck. Sure. Um, well, I, I come at this as an eighth generation Georgian. You know, my family fought in a Georgia regiment in the revolution. And my family's been part of all the bad things that happened in the South, you know, slave owners, you know, uh, there's just, there's a long, long line of racists, you know, in my family. And, um, you, and you, and you have to, um, you, you get confronted with it. And, and, um, but I think, like when I went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, it's up in Pittsburgh, and um, I I spent a lot of time trying to get out of the South, and as soon as I did, I tried to I spent a whole lot of time trying to get back. And you know, Pittsburgh um, has wonderful, wonderful people, but they're very brusque and not very traditional, and they don't know who their great grandparents were, you know, and. It was very, very different. And there was just, there was something, there's something special about the South that, uh, that I feel is really worth preserving. And, and I think, you know, Southerners, Southerners probably consider themselves Southern because of the whole reconstruction thing that we were isolated, you know, as a different entity. We try to become our own nation for lots of really bad reasons. And then after the war, we had the reconstruction thing. So it was just like, you know, I think that there's, um, there's also a lot of endemic narcissism in the South, you know, it's like we were, we were penalized for so long that we felt like we were looked down upon. So we just sort of, we try to, we try to make sure that we're, 
we have our own special identity and our identity is better than everybody else's. And, and I'm not sure anybody's really conscious about that, but, you know, I, I just as a student of Southern history, you know, what little that I do, it's, it's and, and coming from that whole, that whole history myself, um, I see, um, I see people for a lot of reasons identifying as Southern, but, you know, one thing I just, I think, I really appreciated the Southern culture once I was no longer in it. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of bad things that are associated with Southern history, but there's a lot of things about Southern culture that are wonderful that I've, I've never seen anywhere else. And I, and I think those are the things, hospitality, grace, charm, um, you know, putting on lipstick before you leave the house you know those, those sorts of things I think you know I, th I think make the south special and um and you know just uh those are things worth preserving to me it's about the special things that the the culture is capable of producing right you know I I, I have always said that the best way to understand the culture of the south is to look at a pot of gumbo. Gumbo originates from the blending of a West African stew, a meat stew, and a French, a French bouillabaisse, whose central ingredient is fish. And uh, then along the way, as every new immigrant group comes to the South, they all, they all add their own different little flavors to the pot, right? And uh, so we end up with this sort of richer and richer soup of our own creation. And it's true in our music too. It's true in our literature. And, you know, if you want to stand, you know, the, the, the South makes it, the, the South will sort of chase you around the room demanding that you pay attention to where its culture comes from. You know, it's like, you know, because if you sit down with somebody eating a bowl of gumbo, or if you sit, if you go out to a show with somebody and the music you're watching has a particularly pronounced Southern characteristic, you know, the people you're with will be telling you why it matters. And I bet you've experienced this yourself being from the Midwest, you know, you go out to dinner and you eat, you know, a Southern dish and you probably ask people, well, why is this a Southern dish? And you've gotten a soliloquy from those people, you know, and uh, it's probably happened to you in terms of music. I don't know. That's what happens down here. And, you know, we've got the stuff to back it up. You know, we do have the great literature. We do have, uh, you know, and, and literature that turns into great films. 
And, you know, I just, I think all of that together make a culture that's very, very, it's particularly Southern and particularly rich, right? So it's, it's, it's different than any other place in America in that alone. You know, and I've, I've talked to people around the country and, I, I, you know, particularly expat Southerners, you know, and ask them the question, do you consider yourself a Southerner? When there, there are reasons where they might not, you know, uh, either conflict with politics or half a dozen different things. But usually the answer is, oh, hell yeah, I consider myself Southerner. You know, and that's the first thing I am. It's the first identification I take for myself. And I don't know why people do that so, I still don't know why people do that so emphatically. Uh, well, I certainly have a few theories. Um, okay. There's so much, and, and I'll get into them because I want to go on the record here and state my love for the South. So, uh, um, so many great images and metaphors in those answers that we'd want to unpack. It may be true that the South will chase you around the room and tell you about it, but it's going to do it politely. Uh, and it will probably have good lipstick on, to your point. Um, and it'll look proper as it does it. Um, but, you know, this is what I, I find so interesting about the South is that um, it, it has an awareness of itself and its history. Um, but I'm going to say, too, that it's not just uh, an awareness, it's, it's an ability to be self-reflexive. Um, and when I say I kind of want to go on record here, uh, you know, I want to say something I think will stir debate with, with some of my friends, and I hope it will raise questions for both of you, but in the spirit of, of civil conversation. Um, so, you know, I've really lived all over this country and in many places around the world as well, but I've never lived in a place that reflects more meaningfully upon its past, or I think works harder to create a more civil present and better future than Atlanta, um, which is uh, you know, the place I now call home. And I started this conversation by noting that Northern isn't really a thing, but in my experience, Northerners are often united in one unfortunate characteristic, and that's that they've, they've bought into this vision of their historical past. Um, that allows them to deflect rather than reflect in the ways that you're both doing when you talk about all of the things that it meant to have ancestors who go way, way back. Um, and I, you know, I know that feeling in a way, I've got uh, direct ancestors who lived to be 90, born in this country and died 15 years before the civil war. So again, way, way back and yet, no one's ever asked me to reflect on that. And in my experience, having lived in rural New York and other places in the Northeast, those parts of the country need to be reflecting and thinking through these questions every bit as much as the South and maybe more. So um, 
if there's a question there, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I wonder if you could provide thoughts on how you see this kind of ability to reflect as part of Southern culture and how you see the forward momentum of the South, um, as well as in what ways you believe it's most misunderstood or misunder or, or underappreciated in relation to these kinds of conversations. So whoever wants to tackle that one first. Go ahead, Stacey. Uh, you know, um, I think for one, for one thing, like I'm thinking about my time in Pittsburgh, you know, most of the people in Pittsburgh were second and third generation American anyway. And like, like I was saying, some of them don't even know who their great grandparents were. And, um, and I think, you know, we have... The, the voting, I was born the same year as the Voting Rights Act, you know, so we have had to encounter major social change uh, since the year I was born. And, you know, because you know, Af our African-American brothers and sisters did not enjoy equality um, until or didn't get onto the path of equality until the year I was born. And, and that has caused a lot of conversation, a lot of conflict. Um, you know, the, the, the history of lynching in, um, in the South, I'm sure there was lynching up North too, but I mean, but the, the history of lynching in the South um, and the, the, just the macabre nature of um, holding that line, you know, socially, economically between black and white um, has, you know, brought it more into our, you know, into, into our vision. And, you know, it's like, like my grandmother, I, I only knew my father's mother and I loved her so much, but she was so racist. I swear to God, she's just so embarrassing. And, um, you know, and, and when I, you know, got, went out to college at the University of Georgia, I started meeting people you know, from India and from Africa and, you know, all these other, meeting gay people, you know, and like, I had heard all these terrible stories about all these people. And it's like, you need to stay away from them because they have, you know, something. And, um, and I'd be, I would be touched by it. And, um, and I started realizing, you know, these, these friends of mine were just wonderful people and, you know, Muslims. And, and, um, and so you start, you start having to like, look at, oh, my grandmother that I love so much is wrong about a lot. And, and I have found, you know, you know, because of my family history of, um, you know, owning slaves and then, you know, taking advantage of their labor through the sharecropper system, um, you know, and just the way I was taught to think about Black people you know, it's like I, once I got to the University of Georgia, I started reflecting on it, and I have found that um, that you know, it's like you never really unlearn racism. You just learn a little. You just don't learn to do a little bit better all the time. And when I went up to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is like this huge melting pot of you know they've got you know Italians and Jews and Polish and uh, 
they had an African-American section, but they were all segregated. They all had their all segregated neighborhoods. You know, like the Italians didn't live in the same place where the Polish lived. You know, they had Polish hills, you know, and, and they all had their own architecture and, and, and all that. But, but they would all get into the bar shoulder to shoulder and swap uh, racial slurs with each other. You know, like, oh, you Dago, you know, but you buy him a beer. You know what I mean? But it was like, there was no offense there. Um, and so, so, you know, diversity was very different in Pittsburgh and, you know, in, in the South, you know, up until like the nineties, it was just black and white for the most part around the South. You know, Atlanta's always been very diverse and Athens, Georgia and university towns have been more diverse, but, you know, it's like, we, you know, we have just had the, the black and white issue and had to, had to reconcile ourselves to that. And I think, you know, we like Pittsburgh with Pittsburgh always having to deal with an influx of the next new people coming in uh, to, to town and you know, building their own neighborhood. Um, maybe have not thought about it and don't and don't have that history of oppression inside of their family story. Um, you know, makes makes it sort of like, oh, well, I don't care. You know, I don't even know who my great grandparents were. I don't care. You know, and so. Um, but you know, it's like it's very real for us. It's in our face. It's in our Thanksgiving conversations, and and I think we have um, we just we we have more occasion to, to reflect upon it than than maybe third generation people from Poland. Right. Well, it's uh, you know I. I, I I think when you were talking, Stacey, it made me think that, uh, you know, how how ch history also chases us, you know, uh, and, and catches up with us pretty quickly. You know, uh, it was like in the days of the Civil Rights Act, and the whole civil rights movement and voting rights, you know, the inequity in our society was made plain by certain courageous people, right? Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the list goes on and on. And, uh, you know, those crusaders, you know, put the message out that, you know, you, you talk about these things as, you know, how can you say you're a Christian if you believe these things? And, you know, not to get into religion, but you know, that's something people of, you know, my father's era did was, you know, they would tell you that they were guided by their religion, but then do the most horrendous things that were clearly not in line with the religion they espoused to hold to. And, uh, it just got to the point where things were just obvious like that. And, 
you know, it was impossible for, you know, starting with my generation, I'm 60 years old and uh, born in 61. And uh, you couldn't look away. You know, you just couldn't look away. If you had a lick of sense, you couldn't look away. And, uh, you know, that's, I don't even remember what your question was <laughs> at this point, Shannon. But... Well, that's good. We're obviously into a real conversation now. I think that was the whole point, right? Just to find some yeah. conversation. So I think you both answered it. Um, I wonder if it's all right with you if we move into maybe more concrete examples, because we've really sure. been talking about these broader questions of having to find balance with, with history, with family, with social realities. And I'm curious how you find the right balance in your work. Um, and Chuck, um, I want to say on a personal note that I've been a fan of your editorial for some time for a couple of reasons. Um, first, when I moved here in 2006, I was struck by how different the South was from what I had imagined uh, it would be. And that felt especially true for the city of Atlanta. Um, and I think at best I was ignorant, but in truth, I had probably bought into a lot of stereotypes about the South without even knowing it. Um, and second, there's a brutal honesty in many ways to the work you've done uh, to address stereotypes and uh, you know, really acknowledging hard truths while at the same time working to dispel these facile and often willful misconceptions. So how would you describe the imperative of threading the needle and kind of acknowledging the imperfect while celebrating the good uh, and informing the misinformed? And how do you know when you've hit the mark? I, I, now, I don't mean to be facile when I answer you. But I think it's as simple uh, as reporting the truth, you know, because that's both sides of that question are truths about the South, right? We have our, we have our ugly and persistently ugly parts still, right? And I wish I could make them go away, but I can't, you know, and, and that's, you know, a lot of people said to me, you know, when we were starting up Salvation South, why are you going to try to do something that promotes civil conversation? You know, are you nuts? Do you think we can get, you know, the two groups of people who are out there who seem absolutely dead level opposed to each other how can you dream of getting them to talk to one another and I agree with that okay I, I totally agree with that but I think the answer is in what you get them to talk about right every everybody wants to say Everyone wants to defend their grandmother's mac and cheese. Unless it came out of a craft box, you know, and everybody wants to defend their grandmama's fried chicken. Everybody 
wants to defend how sitting on the front porch at their grandma's house was the most pretty and peaceful place, you know, they could imagine. You know, and what we've tried to do with people is to get them to look at those things and to get people to engage in conversation with each other, you know, and we are nowhere near where I would like this to be. You know, we got so far to go, you know, where we're actually engaging people in conversation like that, you know, like, you know, at some point I would like us uh, to get to the to the point where we're doing a podcast, Salvation South podcast, where we put, uh, you know, a right winger and a left winger in the room to talk about their grandmother's mac and cheese. You know, that's that's what I would like to do because I, that's the kind of thing I think we ought to be doing, right? Because they'll find something in common to talk about if we do that. I have kind of these grand social experiments brewing in my head for how we, you know, make this thing fly. Uh, but, you know, we have in our choice of, of writers been able to do that. We've been very ecumenical in our choice of writers. Uh, like my old publication rarely if ever ran fiction or poetry. We've done both because it allows us, it allows people in the South to speak in different voices to each other, you know, and uh, we'll keep doing that. You know, and I, you know, part of it is, is like, you know, my previous publication also didn't publish more than one story a week ever, you know, on a regular basis. It, it went through a period where it published two or three a week, but it didn't stay with that for very long. And, you know, we're already publishing four stories a week, you know, and people say, well, what do you think it's going to become? And I say, I don't know. It's just like the bitter Southerner was when people asked me the same question. It was like, you know, I don't know what it is right now in this first year. But I think if you give us a year, we will see what it becomes. And that's kind of where I think we are right now. So I'm wondering if we could transition to another question here that kind of goes along those same lines. It strikes me that what you've both done successfully individually and uh, with Salvation South is that you've kind of worked at the intersection of identity and business strategy. 
to build uh, sustainable, often cause-driven communities that end up supporting both your professional endeavor and I think a greater good. So um, Stacy, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you could take this one first. Um, for years, a lot of your innovation work was focused on science and commercialization, and now you've really pivoted to build opportunities and even product lines around Southern identity. So looking back, what do you think are some of the key lessons you've learned from this career arc? And how would you describe your work now as a Southern innovator and entrepreneur? Well, um... It's been a long and twisted road, and I think <laughs> I think um, uh, it's best summed up by Winston Churchill: "Never, ever, 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 ever give up." You know, and um, you know, I, you know, one of the things is just failure is a part of it, and pretty much nobody's watching anyway, so just go ahead and fail, and you know, just it's. Um, I have learned from all of my successes and all my failures, and I have learned from, um, you know, I have, I have enough, I have failed enough that um, I'm almost at the point where I regret doing this and regret not doing this. It's almost imbalanced, you know, because I'm, you know, a lot of people get to a certain age and they go, gosh, I really wish I'd done that, you know, and and I have a lot of, I wish I hadn't done that, but I would re prefer to say, I wish I hadn't done that because the, the, the thought, like, I wish I had done that hurts a lot worse than that. I wish I hadn't done that. And, um, and so I think the art, you're not asking really for advice, but just like, you get a lot of young people watching this and it's just like, just go and do it. I have, I have found that um, everything that I've done, whether it seems unrelated or not, uh, whether it made my career path look circuitous and um, undisciplined, uh, has contributed to everything that I know now and informs what I do. And, um, and I have, you know, I, I think if you looked at my career on paper, you would go like, what you know but but it but it all kind of makes sense in the long run and um has informed a lot of of what i do now and why i do it and because you know this the the, the mission of salvation south is incredibly important to me because i believe the south I, I believe the south is a very very special place and there's something very special about it you don't find anywhere else in the country maybe even the world and um and then, you know, just the, the, the whole chase of entrepreneurship, can, can you create a product people buy? And how do you get people to know about your product? You know, in that, that eternal chase, you know, women don't get to chase that much. And so this is like entrepreneurship allows you to chase. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you get your identity, your brand identity uh, to be known? And how do you get people to invest in it and trust in it? And it's like, I'd, I'd rather be flat broke than not do that. And, um, you know, so it's just sort of like goes back to the never, ever, ever give up. And um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that's, that's what I said. Um, well, it's good. No, yeah. anything you say definitely answers the question. I'm just going to say too, I'm going to pull one phrase out of that and say, if you don't already have uh, cocktail napkins that say nobody's watching anyway, 
you need to. Because <laughs> that, that is a great Southern kind of summary of the statement. I love that one. Um, yeah. So you, your comments made me think, um, you know, mm -hmm. one theme that's emerged with so many of the innovators and entrepreneurs we've had the pleasure of speaking with is that innovation is rarely a linear process. It's false starts, it's detours, it's pivots, it's iterations. Um, Chuck, I'm wondering if you could reflect on a similar question and just kind of sketch for us in what ways you would say your professional journey has been linear and in what ways it's taken really abrupt turns that have maybe surprised and delighted you. I was on a really sort of straight corporate path for a long time. Uh, and corporate slash political path. I, I was in journalism until for the first eight years after I got out of college. And then I got a call one day from the governor of Georgia saying, how'd you like to come work for me? And I said, doing what, Governor Miller? And he said, come to the mansion in the morning and we'll talk about it. And he asked me to be his press secretary. You know, I'd written about him before. And I guess he liked what I wrote about him. So he asked me to be his press secretary. And I, I said, I wasn't looking to get out of journalism, but, you know, the job he was offering me was, you know, would clearly be a, an impressive thing on my resume. And plus, the pay he was offering was 150% of what I was making in journalism. And so I, I took that job. And then, you know, once you work a political job like that, particularly in a politician's executive office, uh, you become a commodity on, uh, in the corporate world. And Coca-Cola offered me a job and uh, I was there for five years. And, you know, part of my journalist time had been in New York City. And uh, after those five years uh, with the Coca-Cola company, uh, I got invited by a big PR firm to come back to New York and work for them. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, I, I came back home from there uh, because my dad in 2002 had been diagnosed, diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma. And, uh, you know, I had to come back, take, come back and take care of him. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an only child and I kind of didn't have a choice in that matter. And, uh, so I did, uh, I did that, uh, took care of him for a year. And then when dad passed away, I was doing, uh, corporate freelance, corporate communications work freelance. And, 
my boom, my business of that was going very, very well. It was booming, you know, and it was just me on my own until the 2008 crash, you know, folks like me started losing business. And I, I was able to get a job at a corporate communications firm. It was, you know, I, I did that for a while. And then I got this harebrained scheme to do the Bitter Southerner. And that's how I, I, I got to where I am. So there's, there's kind of, Shannon been no rhyme or reason to it you know like you know I think it's fairly obvious that if I hadn't take taken the step of moving back to New York that second time I would have probably had a, a really conventional career here in Atlanta but I chose to go back to New York one time I, I had made myself a promise that I would always go back if somebody paid me enough money to live in the West Village and to take a cab whenever I felt like it. So that's what I, that, the, the money was good enough to do that. So that's what I did. It, it reminds me of the line at the beginning of the uh, 1946 movie, The Killers. Uh, where Lancaster's laying in bed and the, the killers are coming to get him and somebody says, you know, they're coming for you, you got to leave. He says, what difference does it make? You know, and he just lays there and the guy says, yeah, but you know, come on, don't you want to run? No. He says, well, what'd you do? He says, I made a mistake once. The way you just described moving to New York <laughs> sounded a little like I made a mistake once, this fateful mistake. And, and the rest, is, uh, yeah. the rest is, is lucky history though. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I want to ask a question of, uh, of both of you, um, given the, the nature of these last couple of questions and the ways that you've um, ultimately found professional satisfaction and interesting challenges uh, in relation to questions of identity. If you hadn't been born in the South, what do you think your career would look like today? No clue absolutely no clue because there's not a regional you know there's there isn't a place where jobs are built on regional identity there may be some jobs in universities with midwestern studies or you know northwestern studies or whatever but uh I don't know what I would have done. Thank you. I, um, you know, that's a difficult question because I wonder what I, and, and you're getting into the, into the, uh, the area of woulda, shoulda, coulda, you know, and like, you know, um, would it have actually been better or, you know, if, if I had been raised in, in a different part of the country and, and I, I wonder if, you know, I, would I have been raised with, you know, some of that uh, endemic sexism that's in the South? You know, you know, women are, you know, supposed to be pretty and not have great thoughts, and, you know, and and so I always, you know, was, you know, struggled with that because I always had lots of great thoughts, and I, you know, 
didn't have the patience to keep them to myself. And so, you know, I struggled with that a lot. And, you know, up north, that's just sort of the way women are, you know, they, they, they tell you exactly what they think and, and they aren't, they aren't um, punished for it. And in, in, in maybe in the way that uh, Southern women are. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, I probably would have been, see, would I have been as, uh, as forthright if I had grown up in a place where being forthright was okay, you know, because I, I have been a rebel, you know, my whole life, you know, and um, I have been challenging the status quo my whole life. So what if I lived in a place where I didn't have to challenge the status quo? Um, would I have actually gone on to do something even more interesting and more relevant? Or would I have just sort of, you know, kind of towed the line and made a life for myself doing the day-to-day -day things that, you know, other other people do? I, I, I don't know, um, but... Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have been more interesting. I can say that. <laughs> Being married for, to a lady from the South, um, I think I can answer that last one definitively. Uh, you wouldn't have been more interesting growing up in another part of the country. It's interesting. I actually wasn't thinking in terms of uh, would have, could have, should have, or, or, you know, would have, uh, or, or kind of alternative realities so much as what I think you got to and what Chuck really led us off by saying, which is, it, I don't know, right? Like it's so hard, I think, to disentangle the identity here from so many other questions. And what I've really appreciated is the ways that you've then, both of you turned to embracing that and exploring it as part um, of your professional and, and personal endeavor. Um, I'll say that, you know, from my perspective, luckily for us, you are both Southern. Um, and I think you've managed to make really interesting careers in relation to identity. And the reason I bring that up is because there are a lot of students, Emory students who listen to this show. And uh, in my experience working with them, uh, this young generation of innovators is really interested in identity-based social entrepreneurship, identity-based innovation work in general. And also many of them are hoping to stay here in Atlanta. So I'm wondering what advice you would offer to young innovators and entrepreneurs who have a strong sense of identity, be it Southern or other, and a desire to turn that into a career path. Um, and since they're, they're the ones I know are here in Atlanta, what resources across Atlanta would you point them to as they start this this journey? Stacy, maybe you could tackle that one yeah. first. You know, um, I think start start. There was three questions in there. What was the first one? <laughs> Sorry, that was a complex question. So I guess the first one is what advice would you offer to young entrepreneurs who have a strong sense of identity and, and okay. a desire to turn that into something like a career path? Uh, so so the, the, the question of entrepreneurship and as, as much as I have loved and been around entrepreneurs 
uh, most of my adult life, um, I still don't know what entrepreneurship is. And, and just to give you an example, um, when I was up at CMU, they were just starting to like, the Bayh-Dole Act happened in 1980, which allowed universities to take their innovations and license them and profit from them um, without giving money back to the, the federal government. And so it took about 17 years before universities started to go, oh, wow, this is cool. And so, you know, the business school, you know, was starting, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> so, uh, so the business school was reaching out to, you know, the, the robotics school and chemistry and all the sciences trying to bring them in to explain them, you know, like, you know, stock splits and how do you, how do you talk to venture capitalists and things like that. And so I, I went there much to my advisor's chagrin, but um, there was this one luncheon where they were, you know, they were talking, they had like all kinds of big wigs coming in and, uh, and there were some Nobel prize winners in economics. And some of them had graduated from CMU. And so they were, you know, celebrated. And um, so I went to that and then somehow I got invited to a luncheon and somehow I wound up sitting at the table with the head of entrepreneurship at CMU and two Nobel Prize winners in economics. And, you know, it's like, I'm just a simple country girl trying to get a PhD in chemistry, sitting at a table with a Nobel Prize winner. You know, it's like, I had not planned this for my day. But, um, but <laughs> I asked the question, what is entrepreneurship? Is a kid with a lawnmower in a neighborhood with no lawnmowers, you know, is, is, that, an, is that entrepreneurship? And, and so it wound up, you know, between this professor of entrepreneurship and these two Nobel Prize winners, you know, talking about 15, 20 minutes, you know, about entrepreneurship, the answer is it depends on the Nobel Prize winner, what entrepreneurship really is. And so social entrepreneurship is even more confusing to me because my idea of entrepreneurship is you innovate something and you make money from it. And I think social entrepreneurship kind of runs into that blurry line of nonprofit and you know, because you're, you're, you're doing something innovative to fix a social problem, but can you actually make money from it? So um, I, I, find, um, I find that, you know, you know, people who are trying to do that are going to run into you know, the, those kind of blurry lines. And, um, you know, and, and I think people who want to do this social entrepreneurship should start asking themselves, should you be a nonprofit or can you make money at it? Because, or it's just, you know, something interesting to put on your resume because can it, can it be sustainable? Well, so I think I may have sent us down a false path with the social entrepreneurship uh, the social uh, of that. And I think that's a great point. If we were to switch the question and you were offering advice to people who wanted to create a business or an opportunity around some strong sense of identity that they had, mm. much like the two of you have done with this recent okay. project, what then would you say to those folks? What sorts of resources or what sorts of approaches or where would they begin? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of, little niches around Atlanta that have grown up, especially over the past 10 years, but, you know, starting probably around, the, you know, the crash of 2009, you know, they started becoming more and more invested in, in helping entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of um, university-based um, 
there's a lot of university university based resources. You know, Georgia State has some, especially like in in film, and you know, Georgia Georgia Tech is probably the leader in advancing innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, UGA has got some music industry uh, uh, resources for for that kind of entrepreneurship. The advice I give to you know, the, the people who are listening to you is that I have found in Atlanta that if you are a white male, a lot of doors open up for you. And if you are a person of color or a woman, it is much more difficult. And that I have found that there is a lot of hyper-masculine swagger by men who are not independently wealthy. So there are a lot of men who will tell you that your idea is crap and that you ought to go do something else who, you know, who still have to work for a living and, you know, who, who may have probably have never invested a dime of their own money in, 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 in an innovative idea or entrepreneurship, but they have been around the community. So they feel like they can boss everybody around. So my advice to your listeners is don't listen to them. And, um, you know, and I, but, 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 but on the other side of that, there are going to be some people who actually know what they're talking about, who will ask you meaningful questions about your business model and help you either move forward with that or pivot. You know, there's, you know, if, if you are going to rely on, if you're going to, if you're going to have a Southern based, um, publication you know how are you going to fund yourself you know our choice is tea towels and t-shirts and if that doesn't work for us we're going to have to find something else to, you know we're going to have to pivot and do something else so you know it's like find counsel that builds you up as opposed to tear you down because I have found that Atlanta is full of a lot of insecure men who like to tear you down um, and, um, and my, I'm telling you, don't listen to them because a lot of times they don't know what they're talking about, even though they're paid to know what they're talking about. Uh, I find it hard to believe that anybody is being paid to do something they're really not an expert in. <laughs> <laughs> so Chuck, what, how would you answer that same question? I'm curious. Uh, I was just sitting here wowed at how smart my wife sounded when she mm -hmm. answered the question. I think it comes down to what Stacy was just saying, which is like ignore the naysayers. You know, it's simple as that. I mean, I think back to you know the bitter southerner and started that because I had this idea that South was getting stepped on too much and I found a couple of partners one who had the skill in design one who had a skill in social media uh you know another who had the skill and you know how to run set up and run the backside of a website and uh you know we said we'll start with one story a week 
and I got like a part-time job and we started it one story a week. And then after a year, we were fairly celebrated in social media and we sold 150 t-shirts in two days. You know, so then we sold more t-shirts as soon as we could get them after that. And uh, it's like, we never listened to anybody who told us we couldn't do it. And it was interesting. I only had one person who told it, told me to my face that I couldn't do it, which was the guy who owned uh, the uh, business I had a part-time job at. It was a startup, a funded startup, you know? And I mean, he wasn't not nice about it, but he was like, you know, saying one version or another of it, it'll never fly, you know? Well, well, then there was also that business reporter for the Atlanta Business Chronicle who got drunk at a party that we threw and declared the bitter Southerner would be dead in a year. And uh, he's no longer in Atlanta. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a range of people who uh, will tell you that it, <laughs> you're, you're gonna fail and some of them will be nicer than others, you know, depending on the amount of alcohol they've consumed. So I think on that note, that's a great transition into, I've got one last question um, for you. And I'd like to pick up on something, Stacy, that you said earlier, which is um, the, I wish I had done that hurts a lot more than I wish I hadn't. Um, and, you know, in my experience, entrepreneurs, innovators, artists, are all highly attuned to human needs and are always looking to find solutions to problems that they see. So if you were to name one Atlanta or as an alternative, one Southern problem that you most wanna solve for, what is it and why? Inside of Salvation South or just like if I had all No, the power as an money. innovator. So if you and had all it, the power of money, as it, as it, whatever you wanna tackle. As, as an innovator, I would like to um, bring more broadband into schools. I, you know, about 20 something years ago, I worked for a textbook company and I visited almost all the 159 counties in the state of Georgia and their school systems. And there is an enormous disparity between, um, between you know, Fulton County and Eccles County down at the bottom of the state. There's a huge bit of difference, a huge amount of difference between Fulton County North End and South End too. And I did that, I made that trip one day all the way from North to South and it was, it was eye-opening. And I think there needs to be more broadband and more of a um, more of a skill share kind of curriculum where people can pick and choose the kind of um, curriculum that what they want to learn, especially at high school, and and being able to you know to access world class teachers in chemistry and biology as opposed to re relying on Miss Jones who you know, took a couple of biology classes or your, or your gym coach who took a couple of biology classes in college and is now teaching you mitochondrial functions um, and, um, and be able to, and I saw this working in Georgia. There's a 
place called Sims Academy in Barrow County that has, uh, it's really more like a technical college, sort of pre, pre-college um, sort of environment, but it's still high school. And I, I think that's like the future of, of uh, education, being able to give students hands-on access to, you know, to, to certain things, but also being able to access uh, you know, certain, if you wanna learn Japanese in high school, here's the resources that you need for that. And, but a lot of that involves getting high-speed bandwidth uh, into the schools and the computers to access them. And so like, if, that's, if that is a Southern problem I would like to fix, I would fix that first off. If you want my answer, my answer is the same. Because, you know, the way I look at, at Southern culture, the big thing we're missing is equity, right? And infrastructure, equitable infrastructure can help every kid in the state. And that's what we need, you know. We need to build an equitable society across the South because God knows what would happen if we had one. I'm done. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you both. Um, I've really appreciated the work that you both do even before today. Um, and uh, I came in as an unapologetic flag waver for the city of Atlanta. And I think you've helped uh, to give me a more nuanced perspective too. And uh, so I really appreciate this. Uh, I appreciate the honesty, the forthrightness of the work you're doing. I wish you all the best. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll get other chances to connect. And yeah. if you do any new tile designs, I want uh I want to see both uh, ignore the naysayers and nobody's watching anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Is there anything else you'd like to say to listeners today as we as we wrap up? Well, you know what? Just keep uh, just keep plugging along, and uh, even if it's a mistake now, you'll you'll learn from it from the rest of your life. So just keep plugging along, and find something you like in the Salvation South store. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of might could stories of innovation in the atl to hear additional episodes search might could stories on spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast for more information about the hatchery emory university's center for innovation visit hatchery.emory.edu